Thanks, Dave. Well, good evening, church. It is uh, wonderful to be with you in this way. Just to echo what Taylor was saying before, really excited for when you get to be here in, in this space. Uh, I've really missed being able to see you face-to-face when we worship, uh, doing those things together. But uh, it is still wonderful that we can do this and we can still meet and we can still sit under God's word, uh, still pray, worship him, all those kind of things. So it is still good what we are doing. But we are going to approach this passage together and... I think it's always important that we continue to keep praying as we do so. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. Our good and gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's come to us. Thank you that it speaks truth. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you bring it to life for us. God, we pray that in this moment, as I try to teach it and preach from this word, that you will speak through me, that I'll speak with faithfulness and clarity. And God, I ask for my brothers and sisters across the screen that you help form us into the likeness of Jesus, that you'll grow our affections and our allegiance to him uh, as we look at his teaching tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Taylor mentioned, uh, tonight is our final sermon in the series. Kind of interesting because we, at kind of the, the, the dawn of lockdown, if you like, we started the Gospel of John, Light and Life, and now in like kind of the twilight of lockdown, if you like, uh, we're, we're going to end this series. And we've kind of journeyed, well, we have, not kind of, we have journeyed through chapters 1 through to 6. We're very much building off what Graham did last week. And we're kind of revolving around this question of, like, what are you hungry for? Like, what is it that we are putting in our our effort and our desire? What are we, like, seeking? What are the things that we're looking to provide our, our nourishment and our sense of satisfaction in life? Now, this section, as I said, it it is like, so much built on what went before with what Graham was preaching on. And if you remember when Graham preached verses 1 through to 24, he said that section was kind of like a volleyball player doing like a, a, um, a dig, then a set, and then this section is kind of like the spike, bang. Now that's not because I'm an incredible preacher, let me tell you. That is just because this passage is kind of like that spike where it has this bite to it. Uh, yes, the pun is intended, but a uh, It has that bite and it's powerful. It's got a bit of like a strong rebuke to it. But it also has this like beauty and like you see the victory of Christ and what it means to participate in his victory. And so to just highlight a few things that Graham said as we approach it together um, and the important things of the first 24 verses is that Jesus has fed the thousands, 5,000 men, who knows how many women and children, thousands of thousands of people from just two loaves and a fish. He's producing food from nothing, right? Really declaring uh, his divinity there. And it's not just like a little bit of food. It is like food of abundance, so much food, right? These people are eaten until they are satisfied. Um, That has happened. And then the final thing is these people get super excited and they want to make Jesus their king, but like kind of a king of their own making. And they're the kind of key things that that are going to be built on uh, as we look at this next section. What happened after that is Jesus crossed the lake and the people go and search for him. And that's where we pick up from verse uh, 25. So yes, please do have your Bibles open. We're trekking through a lot of uh, chapter 6 and I'm going to be referring to things uh, a lot of the time. So if you have your Bible open, that'll be super helpful. But I'm going to read from verse 25. It says this, When they found him, so this is the crowd that had the meal, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, 
you're not looking for me because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Now, initially, it kind of looks like the, the crowd is, man, we, we're kind of getting this Jesus business and we're going to follow after him. But Jesus, strata, he calls their spiritual bluff. Uh, and he says, basically, you guys don't care about me. Like, you don't even care about the miracles I can do. You just care about the fact that, to use Graham's words, you want fish burgers forever. That's what they're concerned about. It kind of reminds me of when I was uh, back in school, um, which was getting a little while ago now, and we had our Christian lunchtime group, which was called Cross-Eyed. Usually there's five of us that turn up, and the teacher at the time, Mr. Jack, he'd bring us some snacks, and that was wonderful. Uh, He'd say something from God's Word. But every couple of weeks or months, Mr. Jack would put on pizzas. Now, when the word got out that pizzas were on, every Tom, Dick, and Harry from across the school thought that listening to Jesus' words was the best thing to do on a Thursday afternoon. And so the place was packed, right? They all wanted to dig into these pizzas. But then they'd see Mr. Jack in the playground, and they said to him, Oh, sir, when's Crossside on again? And he'd say something like, Oh, every week. And they'd say, Oh, is it going to be pizza, sir? He'd say, No, nah, not this week. And they're like, Oh, sorry, sir, I can't make it. Like these people, like, they just so clearly only cared about the food. They didn't care about Mr. Jack. That's kind of like what, and the teaching of Jesus. And that's very similar to what's going on here. The crowd, they're not seeking Jesus. They're seeking their stomachs to be filled. They're not seeking Jesus for who he is, but for what he can bring, what he can give them. They want the blessing, but not the blesser. They want the gift, but not the giver. That's what's very much going on here. They love the blessings and the gifts of Jesus, the good stuff that he can do for them, but they don't actually care for Jesus. They don't actually care to be his disciple. And I think this kind of cuts to the, to the heart straight away for the crowd and for us. And it kind of asks us, well, are, are we different to the crowd? Like, do we follow Jesus for who he is or do we just want to be around him and amongst his people for what Jesus can give us, for the blessings? Are we focusing more on the gifts or on the giver? To use Mark Say's language, do we want the kingdom but without the king? Like, do we enjoy the fact that Jesus loves us, but not all that concerned for actually loving Jesus? Now, let me just clarify here that God loves to give us gifts. And it is a beautiful, it's a blessing, it's a wonderful thing to celebrate for us to enjoy. God delights in doing so. The Bible is very clear, clear in praising God for the gifts that are given to us. But when we receive and enjoy the gifts, the question is, Or do we ignore God in the process? Just grapple with the the joy and all the delight, but not actually care for the one who gives it to us. Because God is worthy of us following him and us giving our allegiance to him, whether or not we feel like we're experiencing these blessings or not. And I think that for our culture today, and like myself, you and I, we are very culturally conditioned to think that if we're going to commit ourselves to something, we want to know that we're going to get something in return. We want to know it's going to be of like a benefit to us. Take, for example, the issue of um, getting vaccinated at the moment. Now, I'm not talking about any of the debates that are relating to vaccination. That's not what we're talking about here. But what's the line that they always say to try and motivate you to be vaccinated? They basically say, like, it protects you and it protects the ones you love. It's always just about you. 
like what it can do for you, how it's going to be a blessing for you. And why do the politicians and the health professionals say that? Because they know it works. They know that's what motivates us in our like kind of individualistic, consumeristic culture that has appeal to us. And I think for us as Christians, we can subconsciously, or we don't really intend it, but we can kind of adopt this attitude uh, for God. Focus just on what he can give us, not for who he is. Like just only, like God forgives my sin. God gives me identity. Uh, God gives me meaning and purpose. God gives me hope. Like all good, wonderful, true, delightful things, things we should celebrate. But when that's only and all we think about God, we're just turning God into this like blessing and giving machine. We treat God as like a, it's this transactional relationship. It's not actually a personal relationship which he has invited us into. We create an image of God, which is not actually who he truly is. And then when he doesn't give us blessings that we think he should be giving us, we get upset at him. We get angry. But we're not actually getting angry at the real God. We're actually getting angry at this God that we've created, or we, we think is our God. Because God invites us to deep relationship with him, to experience the blessings, but also to delight in the blesser. And the point I'm trying to draw out here is that, that, yeah, we can enjoy these things. But we're invited to love God, Father, Son, and Spirit, not, for who, um, not just for what he can give, but for who he is. That is the purpose of these miracles and the blessings that God gives us. For the crowd and, and for us in all the various ways, is that they're wonderful and they, the, the purpose of the, uh, the blessings and the miracles are delightful, they're good. But their ultimate purpose is to help us to understand who Jesus is and to draw us into our, grow our allegiance and our affections for Jesus, not just purely focus on the gifts and the blessings. And so with that kind of critique that Jesus gives to the crowd and, and by extension us, he then continues to give like kind of the contrast to that, the right response. Uh, verse 27, he says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life that the Son of Man will give you. Like in a basic sense, like stop just thinking about your stomachs uh, and think about things of greater importance. To broaden out a bit more, it's like don't just focus on the material, but think about what's broader, the spiritual, what is eternal. Now what's kind of interesting about Jesus' language here is he talks about work. Like the language of kind of energy and like where you put your um, effort and labor, production. And that language kind of really appeals to the crowd. They're like, yeah, God, Jesus, tell us. Tell us what we need to do in verses 28 through to 30. And Jesus answers and he says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus answers that the work of God is to believe in him, to believe in the Son the work of God is not a set of rules. It's not a set of regu- regulations, a set of like kind of amazing practices that kind of make you right with God. It's about belief. It's believing in the claims of Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah. He's the one sent by the Father. And as you continue to read through John, we realize that God, he, Jesus lived the perfect life and that he died on that cross and he rose again in victory. When we place our belief in Jesus as that person and commit our allegiance to him by continuing to believe, that is 
the work that God requires. Because Jesus is the Son of God and he is the way to the Father. Now the Jews say, of the crown, okay, Jesus, prove it then. Prove that you are this guy. When I read that, I thought it was really ironic. Like Jesus had just fed them, right? He's just fed thousands of people. Why are they asking him for another sign? But it just gets to the heart of what is going on for the crowd is that they don't have faith in Jesus. They don't believe in who he is. They'll just keep asking for signs because they don't get it. And what's really interesting is Jesus kind of just corrects their theology. He doesn't point back to the signs. He's, he corrects what they're saying about Moses. You thought that Moses was the one giving you the bread? No, nah, it was actually God. He gives the true manna from heaven. And God will give you even greater bread than this. And then Jesus reach, reaches the kind of the central point, the main thing which he's leading to, which is verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry and who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the sustainer of our life. The physical manna, it was good. The physical bread that Jesus produced was good. But he is greater. He is more eternal. He is eternal. And the concept and this image of Jesus being the bread of life is central to everything that goes on before and what Jesus is about um, to say. And so what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Like how is it that he can ensure that someone never goes hungry, like they never go thirsty? Like it is a big claim, right? First and foremost, Jesus is saying that only in him can we find satisfaction to our deepest needs, to our deepest desires. In humanity's search for truth, in our search for meaning, in our search for purpose, only in Jesus can we find these things and be satisfied. Jesus is the only way to, dis- to satisfy those deep needs. And we all pursue them, whether we do it consciously or not. Some people want to um, pursue these kind of questions of, you know, our creation, why we're created, what, our, what is our purpose, by saying there is none. There is no creator. There is no real purpose. Others seek all sorts of other alternatives. But all these ways will leave a person ultimately still seeking or with a, a sense of emptiness, unsatisfied. Because only in Jesus can a person find true deep satisfaction of what it means to know God and be known by God. And because we know God and are known by God, there we find our meaning, our purpose, our value. For the Christian, when we know these things, it doesn't mean that we stop having questions. It doesn't mean that we stop seeking after things. But it means that we know the one who knows all. We might not know the answers to the questions, but we know the one who does. Jesus is the bread of life. He brings eternal life and deep satisfaction to our soul. Now, as we continue in this section, and Taylor read it for us before, I want to kind of press pause a little bit on the bread of life image for a moment. We'll come back to it and explore it. But there's this big theme which kind of really came to the center in those verses, kind of 37 through to 51, which was the tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How does that work in the context of salvation? Now we're going to, um, it's throughout the Gospel of John, but it's like particularly strong here. 
I'm going to look at it verse by verse, but I think there's three kind of yeah, main images or truths that come out from this section. The first two which address the sovereignty of God. The first one is that God needs to call and he needs to draw someone to Jesus in order for them to be saved. As it says back in verse 37 that the Father, he gives people to the Son. As you look at verse 44, it says that the Father draws people to the Son. What that is saying is that for a person to believe in Jesus, for that to even be possible, God needs to draw them. He needs to draw them and give them to Jesus. And we can't do it on our own. That's the point. God has to do a work in us. God is sovereign in that aspect. The second reason, or the image that comes out here, is the person and the work of Jesus. That part just screams of God's sovereignty because Jesus has to come and he has to do his work in order for us to be saved. In him becoming human, dying on the cross, rising again in victory. If he doesn't do that, we have no hope. Zero hope in the world. No matter how hard we try, labor, toil, whatever it may be, we have no hope of knowing God or having eternal relationship with him without Jesus. And also he receives us. As the Father gives, Jesus receives and he holds us and he keeps us. Both those things are kind of, they're beyond our control. They're beyond our, our will. We play no active part in them. They just scream of God's sovereignty and that he is 100% necessary. And it seems as though he is complete when it comes to our salvation. It is completely God's work and we are utterly dependent on him. But at the same time, somehow at the same time, there is still human responsibility when it comes to our salvation. Because if you remember, the whole purpose of John, what was it? The whole purpose is that we would see these signs and believe in Jesus and have life in his name. We are still required to believe. We have free will in that sense. As it said in verse 40, we need to look to the Son and believe. Heaps of times it's saying we need to feed on him. That's an action which we do. And then if you reread verse 51... Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, anyone who, which anyone may eat and not die. God, he isn't force feeding us, but he's giving everything we need, doing all the work, but we still have the free will and responsibility to believe. How those two things work, God's sovereignty, human responsibility is, it doesn't philosophically make sense and I can appreciate that. And I'm not even professing at all to know all the answers or know how that works how that works. People way, way smarter than me can um, even explain it better. But I do trust God's word. And I do trust what he is saying and that somehow these two things can be true and yet held in tension. And for me personally, as I hold this tension uh, for myself, I think it provides such great like, comfort and, and just peace to know that God has called me that he has chosen me that he's brought me to jesus brought me into his family called me his child and it also brings me incredible humility as much as i'm comforted it humbles me because i know that i can't i can't do it on my own but god has called me that's a blessing of what it means that god is sovereign and on the other side with um, our free will and our responsibility that motivates me it motivates me to love god and experience it in a real rich beautiful way and also to continue to persevere, to continue to chase after him. Like, I know God will not let me go, 
and I know I need to keep on believing. Both comforting and motivating. And so with all that said, uh, we we can come back and, and press play again on Jesus being the bread of life. Because as much as the issue of God's sovereignty uh, and our free will is definitely on display here, the overwhelming image is that Jesus is the bread of life and that we need to feed on him. This language of feeding on Jesus, it has been building throughout the narrative. It's been building throughout this discussion and it's kind of getting more and more intense as Jesus speaks. Like to reread verse 51, uh, he said that, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And this bread is my flesh, which I give in life for the world. And like in case we kind of misunderstood it or did Jesus really mean that, he then gets to verses 53 to 58. And he basically says that you need to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you need to drink his blood to remain in him. He says that in a few different ways. It all sounds very intense, eating and drinking uh, his flesh and his blood. Now, without you know, kind of stating the obvious, Jesus isn't literally saying we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, right? The disciples don't suddenly become cannibals. Jesus isn't walking around with bite marks on him. It's not literally what he's saying. Jesus is being metaphorical. He's metaphorically speaking about feeding on him. Now, in a sense, we don't have a problem with that because we can say, like, we devour a book, that's the language of eating a book. We'd say that naturally. We might say we want to drink in the atmosphere of a sports game. You know, some of you wish you were drinking in the atmosphere of the grand final tonight. Right? We, we, we can understand that kind of eating and drinking image. They're metaphorical. And we also know it's metaphorical because of what eating and drinking means, what it symbolizes. Because it's another way of saying believing in Jesus. Another way of saying looking and believing. That's it's been used interchangeably throughout this whole section. The other thing is that talking about eating Jesus' flesh and the fact that he gives his flesh for the world, it points to the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. It's, he's foreshadowing that at this point. He's pointing out again, uh, to point out again, verse 51, that he gives his flesh for the world. And that happens when Jesus hung on that cross for you, for me, for the world. He gives his life so that we can have life. And that is primary to this section. Jesus is the light of the world. Feeding on him is belief. He died on the cross, giving his flesh for us. That's the primary image. That is the main point. Believing in Jesus and then continuing to feed on him. That's what Jesus is talking about. But what is so like, incredible about Jesus' teaching, and does this so often, is that there's such richness and depth and just additional complexity to what Jesus uh, teaches. And the imagery of feeding, feeding on Jesus, opens up this kind of new layers of, of meaning for us, which I think are really helpful. Now, Jesus consistently spoke of the need to feed on him as the bread of life. And I think this naturally raises the question, well, if you can feed on Jesus, then you can obviously feed on other things. You can feed on something else. We can come to Jesus in order for him to be our source of nourishment, our source of life and joy, or we can be feeding on something else. Now, most of us are familiar with the 
the little saying, you are what you eat. In a literal food sense, like we understand what that means, you eat healthy food, you're going to be healthy, generally. You know, you eat unhealthy food, you're going to be unhealthy. You know, basic health advice, you know, you get that for free. But the basic principle is what you put into yourself forms you. And by the same extent, what we are consuming, what we are doing, it is shaping our spiritual self. What we consume in terms of our entertainment, what we consume in terms of the the world of ideas, what we consume in terms of accepting as truth, who we spend time with, how we spend time with them, they impact our spiritual health. So I think by Jesus saying we continually need to feed on him, it speaks both powerfully to the unbeliever and the believer. For the unbeliever, it's, it's very clear. Jesus is calling us to believe in him, to have faith, to become united with him. For the Christian, though, it's an invitation and perhaps a rebuke to feed on Jesus and to not stop, to continue to feed on him. To stick with that metaphor for a moment, like you are what you eat. Think about what, what is that for you in this moment? What is it that you are consuming? What is it that you're continually doing? And what would that say about the state of your spiritual health? Because what we're consuming, what we're spending our time on, it can be Jesus, or it can be other things. Now on one level, like there's obviously the straight out sinful things. And if we're just straight out sinning, the response there is to confess your sin to God, to throw yourself on his grace and to, re- to repent and walk in the life which he's offered us. That's, I guess, what it is. It's repentance and experiencing the grace of God. That's what we do when we're, we're sinful. And we can understand that feeding on sinful things, consuming sinful things, that is not feeding on Jesus, right? That's not a surprise. But there's a whole other stack of ways which we might not be sinning, but we're not feeding on Jesus either. The way we feel our time, our thoughts, again, the things that we're consuming, they could be anything but Jesus. They might not be directly sinful in a sense, but they're certainly not nourishing to our faith. So if that first category was sinful, you might want to call this category just being unwise. Like some examples, you know, just if you only just spent countless hours on social media, countless hours playing video games, countless hours watching TV, whatever it may be, endless shopping, observing the financial market, just some things which are just can be good and they're life-giving. But if that is all we do, or we're listening to these other voices which are not really of Jesus and are against his teaching, they're not feeding on him it might not be all we do, but we don't want to feed ourselves with things of, um, not of Jesus, with ideas and thoughts and not of him, but then nothing of Jesus himself. And if that is the case, we end up forming not into the image of Christ, but to the image of worldly things. And if that's you, and I'm saying it definitely to myself as well, is that I fear that we can become content and perhaps even oblivious to having malnourished faith and being okay with it. Like if you think about actual food again for a moment, like actual food, like say you didn't eat food for a couple of days. 
you might actually lose some weight, might be a helpful thing. But if you didn't eat food for like a week, for two weeks, you didn't eat food for three weeks, like you'd be starting to get a bit malnourished, wouldn't you? Or say for like five years, all you did was just eat food on one day of the week for one meal. And you did that for five years and then yeah, every second week you didn't even do that. Like it would just be absurd. You'd be malnourished. You just wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do that to your physical self. So why do we allow it with our spiritual self? Why do we allow that with Jesus? You wouldn't accept getting physically malnourished. So can I please encourage you to not be spiritually malnourished? Jesus isn't going to force feed you, but his, his invitation is like a banquet. He's inviting us to feed on him, to find life, offering it to the full, offering us deep, soul-satisfying relationship with him. So please, can I encourage you, just keep coming to Jesus. Keep feeding on him, spending time in the word, spending time in silence, spending time listening to worship, worshiping God in whatever way is helpful for you, drawing, looking at the at creation, spending time with his people and discussing your walk. If you feel like you're just so tired, you have no energy to do any of those things with God. You have no energy to do that. Just sit and be with God. Like, don't try to do anything. Just sit in his presence. The Holy Spirit will intercede. Jesus' invitation to feed on him is an invitation to life. With all that said, I want to read, look at verse 53 and on. But I'm going to ask Taylor to come up. Uh, she's going to read it again for us. Thanks. So verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, I was saying before that uh, Jesus is speaking in metaphorical terms, and that is certainly true. Uh, he's still doing it here, he's speaking metaphorically. But as Taylor read it, and as you have your communion elements, the, the elements of the Lord's Supper in front of you, like, did your mind start to go, is Jesus talking about the Lord's Supper here? Like, is that what is going on? Like all this language of eating the flesh, drinking the blood, it sounds an awful lot like Jesus saying, this is my, uh, like breaking the bread and saying, this is my body, pouring the cup, saying, this is my blood, eat and drink this in remembrance of me. It sounds awfully similar, doesn't it? Now, although this um, passage is metaphorical and it's not primarily talking about the Lord's Supper, it is in the context of the Lord's Supper at all. As you heard at the end, they're in Capernaum, they're in a synagogue. Jesus hasn't, he's not close to his death yet. Uh, it's not the Lord's Supper. But this passage has been the cause of lots of debate uh, throughout the centuries. 
And I'm not going to get into that here, but I want to follow in the way of Don Carson, who is an incredible thinker of the Christian faith. And he basically says that these words in John, yes, they're not primarily about the Lord's Supper, but they do give secondary meaning to it and help us understand some of the richness that happens in the Lord's Supper. And there's a quote by this guy called Maurice, and it's going to come up in your screen. And I think it captures it perfectly. It's a little bit old English, but you get the idea. He says, If you ask me then whether he's speaking of communion here, I should say no. But if you ask me where I can learn the meaning of communion, I should say, nowhere else so well as here. What he's saying, yeah, John 6, it's not about communion. But you want to understand some of the richness that is going on as we take the bread and we eat the cup, uh, take the bread and drink the cup. And think about Jesus being the bread of life. Because when we, when we do this, we are remembering that Jesus was flesh. We are remembering that he gave his life for us, his body and his blood. And we, as we do this, we are believing in Jesus. We are believing and proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die on the cross for us. And that's what it means to feed on him, to believe in him. And together we're proclaiming his death and we're demonstrating what is going on for us spiritually as we take communion together. We're believing that is sufficient for us. We are feeding on Jesus by faith as we take communion together. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to take uh, the Lord's Supper together, remembering that we have life uh, because of Jesus, remembering and declaring that he was a man who came to earth to die on that cross. So hopefully you do have something with you. There'll be a moment for you and a moment to get something if you don't something to represent Jesus' body and his blood. And I am going to step out of John chapter 6 uh, and step into 1 Corinthians 11, which definitely is about the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I'm going to read our usual section that we read together. After I've read this, uh, Georgia is going to pray. And then after Georgia prays, there's going to be a song, a song that some of our worship team has uh, produced and recorded for us. And the song is called Remembrance. It's very much a communion kind of song. And it begins with these words. I take the bread of life, broken for all my sin, your body crucified to make me whole again. As the song plays, worship God, however that is appropriate for you, and take and eat the bread that represents Jesus, that represents his body, that he is the bread of life, broken for you and be thankful. And after the song is played, uh, as we, after we worship together, we'll then drink the cup. So just to explain, I'm going to read. Georgia will pray. We'll worship together in that time, eat the bread, and then we'll come back and drink the cup together. Let me read this for you. This is the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. For what I received from the Lord, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your works, for what you established through Christ. You sent Jesus into the world to carry out your will. You saw us in our sin, living in darkness and on the path to death, and you offered us eternal life. And although it is a gift to us, it cost you greatly, his flesh for the life of the world. You have given us the true bread from heaven and you invite us to eat. In feeding on this bread of life, we remain in him and him in us. So as we have communion now, we remember and celebrate abiding in Christ. Thank you because you are not distant, God, but you are our living Father who chooses to dwell in us. Although we are not at church together now, we still share in this communion. We take comfort in knowing that we always share in the one bread. It is your son that unites us. And even though we look forward to meeting together in person soon, we know unity does not depend on it. Jesus established the unity already when he died on the cross. Your planning is perfect, God. We trust you as you continue to carry out your work here on earth. And we pray your kingdom grows so that people from all nations will be raised with Christ on that final day. We pray all this in your powerful name and for your glory. Amen.